We need that familiar truth this morning. God so loved the world. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when we can't see from our perspective how what has happened over the past 24 hours in the Middle East, in Israel, how? And so this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. This morning, I am going to pray, as we're commanded to do in Psalms, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I invite you to remain standing and pray along with me as I lead us to the throne of grace, that we may find grace to help in time of need. Father, we thank you for the truth we have just sung. Again, it's a familiar truth, but may it be a truth that never loses its power in our hearts and in our lives, regardless of what we see happening in this world. You have loved this world. This world is not spinning out of control. You are not trying to make the best of a situation gone terribly bad. And so we pray that you, the one and only God of this universe, will intervene and that you will bring an end to what is happening in Israel. I pray, Lord, that you would spare lives and save lives. I pray that you would frustrate the plans of those that have initiated this attack. I pray that you would give wisdom to political leaders and military leaders. I pray, Lord, that our brothers and sisters in Jesus there in Israel would have opportunity in the midst of this fight to point Jews to their Messiah. Jesus, bring peace to Jerusalem, I pray. And we remember, Lord, that although it's been going on for over a year now, well over a year, that we have brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are facing attack on a daily basis. We pray for them. We pray that you would frustrate the plans of those who want to prolong this war. And I pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as we open your word, we, we pray that your spirit would take your word and work in the hearts of your people. I pray that you would love your people well this morning through me as I speak the words of truth and grace to them. May we leave this place thinking higher thoughts of Jesus and having fallen deeper in love with him because of who he is and what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I encourage you to open your copy of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14 as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel. This is part 61. Some of you are wondering, when will we be done? It'll be just a little while yet, and um, interestingly, you'll remember that Mark dedicates nearly one-third of his entire gospel to the final week of Jesus' life. 
Because so much significant stuff happens during that final week. And now as we turn the page into Mark 14 and deep into Mark 14, it's no longer that Jesus is just during, in the final week of his life. He's in the final hours of his life. I, I really encourage you, if you are new with us this morning, if you haven't been attending Bethel for very long, come and be a part of our pizza with the pastors after this service down in our lower level fellowship center, if, if you're wondering, if you're teetering on the fence, let me just tell you, it's Lou Malnati's. So you should jump over that fence and plan on joining us. And then tonight, we are going to talk about something that we see being played out in this very scene in Mark chapter 14. Would you come back at six o'clock tonight? Enjoy food and fellowship together, and then we're going to deal with one of the most tough, uh, the toughest issues that any of us will ever have to deal with, and that is how do we respond in a biblical way when we've been hurt by others? We see Jesus in this scene responding in a gracious and merciful and kind way to Judas. He is being betrayed by Judas. So how do we as Christians flesh out a Jesus kind of attitude toward those who have wronged us? Let's see. Let's pick up this text. We'll talk about it tonight. Questions and answers. The pastor's panel. But let's see from God's word how this all goes down on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus has just concluded praying, Father, What I see coming for me in dying on the cross and bearing your wrath against the sins of my people. I stagger at that. I stumble before that. I'm on my face before you, pleading with you to let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Father, I know this is your plan. I know this is your will. And so I am surrendering. Not my will, but your will be done. And then Jesus stands to his feet and turns to his disciples and says, Rise, let us be going. Look, here he comes. My betrayer is at hand. Now verse 43 of Mark 14. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, that is Judas Iscariot, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus. They seized Jesus. But one of those those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And all the disciples left him and fled, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked." This is the word of our God. This is the kiss of Judas. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to find a Bible near you and turn to page 1012. That's Mark 14. Here we see the kiss of Judas. 
Now, according to Consumer Reports, I happen to drive one of the most reliable vehicles ever produced. It's a seven-year-old Honda Accord. And in the three years that I've owned it, it has lived up to its reputation almost. Earlier this year, the exterior temperature gauge stopped functioning, which isn't that big of a deal until I take the car through a car wash and the exterior temperature gauge begins reading 40 below zero. (laughs) Again, on most days, not a big deal until it's a 90-degree day and the air conditioner begins blowing blazing hot air because the car thinks it's 40 degrees below zero outside. So, I say all of that to say this, uh, the Honda Accord is mostly reliable most of the time. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think the same thing about the Bible. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Satan deceived Eve with these words, did God really say? Humankind has doubted the authenticity and reliability of God's word. It's true even with Jesus' disciples. Remember that by the time we reach Mark chapter 14, on three separate occasions, Jesus has told them that what God said in the Old Testament will happen. He will be delivered into the hands of the religious leaders who will condemn him to death, who will deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, and he will die before rising again. And now right here in Mark 14, we see those prophecies coming to fruition. We see those prophecies being fulfilled, proving to us that the Bible is reliable. That's the big idea of this scene Because everything that occurs in this scene is fulfilling Scripture. It's all happening just as Jesus said. And that's why near the end of this scene, Jesus says, Listen, I am being betrayed and arrested, not because I'm being outwitted or outnumbered, but because the Scriptures are being fulfilled. That's the Point Jesus is making in this scene. And it's a vital point for us. What God says in His Word is true, always and forever. Okay, three of you agree with that. Thank you. Our God will make good on every prophecy and promise He makes. And there are so many prophecies that are being fulfilled on this night in the Garden of Gethsemane right here in this scene. Let me give you some of them. Zechariah 9 tells us that the Messiah will be betrayed for how many pieces of silver? You can read it on the screen, right? 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah will be numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he'll be considered and treated like a criminal. Psalm 22 says that dogs, and if you know the Scriptures, you'll know that many times in the Scriptures, dogs refer to Gentiles. Dogs will encompass the Messiah, and a company of evildoers will encircle him. And that's what's happening here in this garden Psalm 35 says that they will hate the Messiah without a cause. And Psalm 41 tells us that one of the guys who has eaten bread with the Messiah will lift up his heel against the Messiah. That's Judas Iscariot. 
And then there are the other 11 disciples, the ones who are still with Jesus. And we're about to see the prophecy of Zechariah 13, verse 7. It's what we talked about a few weeks ago. It's going to come true on this night. When Jesus is struck as the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Every one of those prophecies is being fulfilled on this night in this garden. So what God says will happen does happen every time. Where are you tempted to doubt that? Where are you tempted to question that? Is it Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Are you doubting that God will be everything for you, never leaving you in want? Or maybe it's Jeremiah 31, verse 3, where God says, I have loved you with an unstoppable, unshakable, unbreakable, always and forever love as my child. Or maybe you're doubting 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that God will never permit any of us to face a temptation or a trial or a test or a difficulty that isn't accompanied by his sustaining and strengthening grace for us. It won't be too much for us. Whatever doubts are dogging you, whatever questions are haunting you, this scene is here not to just show us how the betrayal of Jesus goes down, but to prove that the Bible is reliable. So let's step into this scene right now. Let's, let's see what's going on here because coming up the hill there on the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane is a mob, a mob of men. And notice how Mark begins here in verse 43. He says, immediately. Now, if you've been with us through our study of Mark's gospel, you know that that is Mark's favorite word. He hasn't used it for a while, but still, it's his favorite word. Immediately, while Jesus has concluded praying and is telling his disciples that Judas is coming, Judas arrives. So Jesus is not surprised to see Judas. He knows that Judas has been on his way to the garden with the religious leaders, with some of the temple police, and with 600 Roman soldiers. 600. You say, Pastor Ken, where are you getting that? This text doesn't say 600. Well, John tells us that in his gospel. He says it's a band of soldiers. And the Greek word he uses means that it's a squad of 600 soldiers. So a group this large wouldn't be able to sneak up on anyone. You could hear them coming, and because it's dark, you could see them coming because they're carrying lanterns and flaming torches. But I want you to notice here that when Jesus sees them coming, he's not running, he's not hiding, because he is not panicking. He's surrendering. John's gospel actually tells us that when the mob arrives, before any of them can say anything to Jesus, Jesus asks this, whom do you seek? Or in today's lingo, you looking for me? And then they say, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds to them, with two simple Greek words. Ego, I me, I am. It's ego, I me. 
The same two words in the, in the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament that are used back in Exodus chapter 3 where God is speaking to Moses out of a burning bush and God identifies himself to Moses with those same two words. I am is speaking to you. I am the self-existent one, the self-sufficient one, the self-reliant one. And so go to Pharaoh and tell him that ego I me, the I am, says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And here in this garden, on this night, when Jesus identifies himself to the mob coming to arrest him, he does so with two little words, ego I me, I am. And when he does, immediately, this 600 plus men fall to the ground. John tells us that. Every religious leader, every Roman soldier, even Judas, all of them instantaneously knocked off their feet at the power of Jesus' words, I am. Boom. And at that moment, we would expect all of them to do a Philippians 2 verse 11 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that doesn't happen. Because the unbelieving heart is so hard. Unbelieving eyes are so blind. I mean, for three years, Jesus had given them every sign that he was the Son of God. But rather than believing on Jesus and following Jesus, they only hardened their hearts against Jesus. And yet, two little words from Jesus drop a 600-person mob to the ground at the feet of Jesus. Listen. God's word has power. Unlimited power, unilateral power. When there was nothing in the beginning, God spoke and everything came into being. On the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of a storm, Jesus stood in the back of a boat and spoke, peace be still. And the waves sat down and the winds shut up. At the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man begins walking and living and talking. When Jesus speaks, things happen. And listen, we are holding in our hands this morning those same words of Jesus, the same words of God, words that possess the power of Jesus and the power of God. That's why Hebrews chapter 4, 12 says that the word of God is living and active. Literally, it is energetic and powerful. How powerful? It can do what nothing else can. It's sharper than any two-edged sword because it can pierce the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word can do what nothing else can. 
So do not underestimate the power of this book because when Jesus speaks, 600 plus men instantly fall to the ground there in the darkness. Now their flaming torches would provide some light, but but not enough to really recognize anyone. And so the religious leaders and Judas had devised a plan. Judas would identify Jesus with a kiss. And yet Matthew's gospel tells us that when Jesus sees Judas coming, he says this, Friend, 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 why have you come? Again, we've read the story, we've seen earlier in Mark that Jesus knows exactly what Judas is doing. And yet, he asks, friend, why have you come? It's Jesus giving Judas one final opportunity to hit the brakes on his plan. One last chance to fall at the feet of Jesus The Jesus he has seen, the Jesus he has heard, the Jesus he has followed, and to fall at his feet and plead for forgiveness. Friend, friend, why have you come? For three years, Judas had a front row seat to the mercy of Jesus he so badly needs. For three years, Judas had seen Jesus make the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the dead to live. For three years he had seen the mercy of Jesus up close and personal. But here on this night, like every other night, Judas rejects the mercy of Jesus and comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, teacher. And Judas is not respecting Jesus. He's dissing Jesus. Jesus. There are hundreds of rabbis in Israel. And you're no better or no different than any of them. You are not my Savior. You're not my Lord. You're not my King. You're just a rabbi. We can hear the animosity, the hostility, the hypocrisy as Judas from his lips says those words and leans in to betray Jesus with a kiss. Judas uses a kiss, a symbol of love and affection, and Judas twists that and turns that upside down into an act of betrayal. It's such an epic act of betrayal that we still refer to the Judas kiss today. Why? Why a kiss? Why a kiss? I mean, most of us don't go around walking up to people we don't love and just lay one on them, right? Because if you do, you'll find yourself in the back seat of a cop car. So why doesn't Judas identify Jesus, whom he does not love, with a handshake or a high five? Or a finger being pointed at Jesus? I think the answer is back in Psalm 2, verse 12, which says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
Judas would have known this verse from Psalm 2. He would have known that it was speaking of the Messiah and kissing the Messiah in love, worshiping him, honoring him, adoring him. But Judas, in defiance and hatred, turns the meaning of that kiss on its head, and instead of using it to worship Jesus, he uses it to mock Jesus. You say you're the Messiah. You're just a poser, a wannabe. So you want a kiss? Here's your kiss. To Judas, that kiss of death is worth just 30 pieces of silver, the going rate of a common slave in that day. And so with this kiss, Judas isn't just thumbing his nose at Jesus but at what God's word had promised about Jesus. Listen, what we really think of God will be revealed in what we think of God's word. You can't honor God without honoring his word. You can't obey God without obeying his word. You can't love God without loving his word. That's why a man that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart writes this in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your word. It's kind of like my relationship with Joanna. Joanna is not here today. She is taking advantage of the long weekend, and, and with our daughter Mary, she is in Louisville uh, visiting our son and daughter-in-law, and then our daughter and son-in-law and grandson came down from Ohio to be with them. I am a little jealous. Pray for me, okay? You need to come back tonight to, deal, to find out how I deal with relational hurt, okay? So, um, but my relationship with Joanna, back when we were dating, by the way, Joanna still does this. Every once in a while, I'll come into my office, and she'll have written me. You know, you go from long love letters when you're dating to, like, three-word love letters when you're married. And so she'll take a Post-it note, and she'll just say, just remember, I love you. And she'll post that on my desk. But, you know, back when we were dating and we were separated, she would write, letters and I remember going to the mail room at college and and finding a letter and then going back to my dorm and sitting down and and reading it and then throwing it away not really okay I can say that because she isn't here she'll watch this later so I'll get it tomorrow evening when she gets back but I'd sit down and I'd read it and then I'd reread it and I'd reread it and I'd keep it And now, 30 years later, I still have so many of those letters. Why? I love her. And so I love what she has written to me. Do we love God by loving what he has written to us? It's here that we discover his love for us. It's through these words that God gives life to us. It's what Peter said back in John chapter 6, verse 68. Lord, where else are we going to go? Whom else are we going to follow? You have the words of eternal life. You get that? You see that? 
Judas, one of the twelve, who's heard the words of life from Jesus, turns on Jesus right here with a kiss, and the soldiers arrest Jesus. They seize Jesus by force. Why? Why the force? Why seize him? Why are they flexing here? Why the power play here? Why do they bring 600 soldiers carrying swords and clubs? Why, as John tells us in his gospel, do they tie the hands of Jesus? He isn't fighting. He isn't fleeing. Again, he's surrendering. And yet they take the Prince of Peace by force. They arrest the light of the world under the cover of darkness. A platoon of sinners subdues the sinless Savior. It is so shocking in the moment that one of the disciples is not going to let Jesus go down without a fight. John tells us that it's Peter. Surprise, surprise, right? But Peter pulls out a sword and takes a swing at a man named Malchus cutting off his ear. And that means Peter is either an expert with the sword and aimed for an ear, or he's a novice with the sword, intending to take off a head, but only getting an ear. That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) And Matthew tells us that Jesus says, Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, do you you think that I cannot appeal to my Father in heaven? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, you you think you've got to protect me? Peter, you think you've got to preserve my life? Peter, you don't know that I have at my disposal 72,000 angels. And that's a big deal when you remember that back in the book of 2 Kings, one angel took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Jesus is saying, Peter, you can't stop this from happening. Peter, you're not going to delay this. My purpose in coming is to die. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Even you, Peter, are incapable of keeping me from the cross. And then, and I love this part of the story, and then in mercy and love and grace, Jesus turns to Malchus, the man with one ear now. And Luke tells us that Jesus, with his hands bound, touches Malchus's ear and heals him. I just want to make sure we understand what's going down here. The text does not say that Jesus picks up the severed ear and super glues it back into place. No, Jesus, with his hands bound, reaches up and touches the side of Malchus's head where the ear had been and creates a new ear. It's Jesus' final miracle before the resurrection, and it proves that Jesus' power is uncontainable. Even with 600 plus men showing up to bind the hands of Jesus in front of him, the power of Jesus is not bound. 
He still possesses all authority both in heaven and on earth right here in the garden as He will on the cross. And that's still true today. In your life, the power of Jesus is not bound. Not by your boss or your physician. Not by your spouse or your child or your parent. Not even by the one who is sitting in the Oval Office or in the Kremlin. The power of Jesus cannot be bound at all by anyone or anything. And that's why Jesus turns to the mob and says, Why would you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. What had Jesus ever done? What had he ever said that they would come to take him down with swords and clubs? He's never preached insurrection or led a band of revolutionaries against Rome. His kingdom is not of this world. And yet here he is under arrest, numbered with the transgressors as though he were a criminal, fulfilling what was prophesied 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53. And that's why Jesus says, the real reason you are here to seize me is so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. It's all about the word of God. That's the real reason you're here. Now you're here of your own will, of your own volition. You want to do this, but you do not realize that the scriptures you do not believe you are actually fulfilling with your actions. You are here because this is what was promised in the Old Testament. You are here to fulfill the Scripture. And this shows us how committed Jesus is to His Word and His promises. This shows us the priority of God's Word in the life and ministry of Jesus. And even in the death of Jesus. Jesus is all about the Word. You remember that just an hour or two before this scene... An hour or two before this scene, back in verse 27, Jesus reminded his guys that back in Zechariah 13, verse 7, says that when he's arrested, they will scatter. They will abandon him. They will leave him. And here it happens. Verse 50, they all left him and fled. But they aren't the only ones who are running away, the 11 apostles. Because Mark includes a curious little note here about a nameless young man who's followed Jesus into the garden, perhaps watching from behind a tree a ways away. And the soldiers see him. And the soldiers seize him. He wriggles out of his pajamas and he runs away naked. It's probably John Mark himself, the one who is penning these words. Now, I know that anytime a pastor says naked in a sermon, everybody's going to remember that. But that's not what Mark wants us to remember as he writes that. He is emphasizing here that now Jesus is alone. The 11 disciples 
who still love Jesus, have fled from Jesus, and the young man who's watching Jesus from afar, he's gone to, streaking out of that garden. The prophecy of Zechariah 13, verse 7, is being fulfilled. The shepherd is about to be struck, and the sheep are already scattering. Jesus is completely and utterly alone now. Why? Because no one else is capable of helping Jesus to pay the price for sin. There are no co-redeemers. This is not a team effort. It's the one and only Son of God being what only He can be to do what only He can do in giving what only He can give. Life. Eternal life. By dying in our place. And that He must do alone. It's Acts 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only Savior. So please don't say that all religions teach basically the same thing. No, Christianity turns all other religions upside down and on their head because salvation isn't something achieved by us working our way to God. It's something achieved by God coming to us. And that's why salvation cannot be achieved by us. It can only be received by us. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. John 1 verse 12 says this. To all who did receive him. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Have you believed him? Have you received him? Have you embraced him by grace alone. Through faith alone. Repenting of your sins. Falling at his feet and saying forgive me. I believe, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you paid the price in full. I believe there's nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation. It's you, Jesus, and it's you alone. I believe. If you have not, why not? Would you come to him today? Would you believe on him today? You can, because believing in Jesus is not a blind leap of faith. It's not a shot in the dark. There is sufficient evidence to prove that it is all true. The Old Testament prophesied it. It prophesied the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus predicted it, and here we see God fulfilling it. Just as God had said. When you come to Jesus and believe on Jesus, when you are a follower of Jesus, then there are two takeaways from this scene for us. Number one, you can trust the promises in God's Word. Let me ask again, which promises are you prone to doubting? 
Is it that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy you like his love? And you're doubting that, and so you're looking for love in all the wrong places? Is it that he is enough to satisfy your soul? And you're doubting that, and so you're looking, you're searching for satisfaction in all the wrong things? Listen carefully, please. I hadn't thought about what I'm going to say until this week. I'd never thought about it this way before. But if there was ever going to be a time and place where God would fail to fulfill a promise, this night would be that time and this garden would be that place. Because what Jesus will endure over the next nine hours until he is hanging from a cross will be horrific. He will be beaten beyond human recognition. And if the Father, who loves his Son with a perfect love, refuses to rescue his Son from that horror because he has promised that this is the destiny of his Son, then you can be sure that God will keep his promises. He will fulfill his word every single one, every single time to you. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of them. And that's why we can utter our amen, our so be it, our yes God, we believe because of what we read in Romans 8 verse 32, that he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So how will he not also with his son graciously give us all things? He will. He will. He gives us his word, and then he gives us his son to prove his word. Jesus is proof that we can trust the promises in this book. And that secondly, we can trust the power of this book. Where are you doubting the power of God's word? Is it that you aren't seeing his word change the heart of your son or your daughter like you've been praying he would do? Is it that he isn't saving that family member or that friend like you've been praying he would do? Is it that you're still struggling with the persistent sin after all these years of being a follower of Jesus? That persistent sin like forgiving those who have hurt you or living in fear of what might happen to you or you're frustrated with God's plan for you. You feel trapped in a life you never wanted. I don't know what it is for you where you're doubting the power of God's word, but one of the big reasons Mark gives us such a detailed description of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus is to show us that in the face of constant opposition, God's plans and God's purposes march on. Because God's word possesses not just ultimate power, but infinite power. It's unstoppable because it is eternal. Isaiah 40, verse 8. 
the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And that's why no one and nothing can keep Jesus from the cross. Peter can't. The other disciples can't. The devil himself can't. The Old Testament promised it. Jesus predicted it. And now God is fulfilling it. So claim the power-packed promise of God in Isaiah 55, verse 11. My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There, you have God's word on it. Even the kiss of Judas proves that you can trust the promises in God's word and the power of God's word. The Bible is reliable. Amen. Father, may you take your word, fulfilling your promises, demonstrating your power, and call people today to saving faith in Jesus and strengthen the faith today of those who are followers of Jesus. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for showing us Jesus. Thank you that you will never go back on or fail to fulfill a single promise. Jesus proves it. May we believe. In his name I pray. Amen.